Welcome to the first episode in the Goodwill Hunters Winter Series on Water for Development. I'm Michael Wilson, CEO of the Australian Water Partnership. I'd like to introduce my co-host for this series, CEO of WaterAid Australia, Rosie Ween. Thank you, Michael. In this first episode, we'll be talking about the water crisis and we're going to hear from two amazing water leaders. You'll hear from them the urgency for action that's needed on water for the people and the planet. You'll hear how they are taking action. You'll hear from Dr. Rose Kagwa, a leader from the National Water and Sewerage Corporation in Uganda. She's joined in this episode by Mina Gooley, founder and CEO of Thirst. We hope you enjoy the episode. Water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people globally. The United Nations has said that in over 300 locations, we can expect to see conflict over water by 2025. This is exacerbated by continuing population growth and the impacts of climate change. So what happens if we do nothing? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from the Australian Water Partnership. As a Water for Development initiative supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Water Partnership mobilises Australia's internationally recognised expertise to drive action towards sustainable water management in our region and beyond. We're so glad you can join us for this crucial conversation on our shared global water future this winter on Goodwill Hunters. I'm joining from the lands of the Kulin Nations in Melbourne and Michael from Ngunnawal country in Canberra. We extend our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their care of our lands and waters. We extend that respect to all our First Nation listeners. We're at a time when globally water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people. This impacts people's health, their livelihoods, education, and economies at the household, community, and national levels. And if we're going to put those statements into numbers, what that means is one in three people don't have access to water that's safe to drink. It means a third of the schools around the world don't have clean water. And we know that this water crisis impacts girls and women, men and boys differently, with girls and women bearing the brunt of the impact and the work and often being excluded from decision-making. Faced with these statistics, we have two guests today who are acting to change all this. I just can't wait to hear more of their stories and more about the work that they're doing on the water crisis. Rose and Mina, welcome to the podcast. Rose, if I could start with you as somebody who's been tackling the water crisis for many years and you've won leadership awards uh, for your leadership, such as the International Water Association's Women in Water Award, and you're a leader in the National Water and Sewerage Corporation in Kampala, where's your passion for, for water come from and, and how's it uh, impacted your career? Thank you, Rosie, for that 
um, introduction to the discussion, and I'm very delighted to be here. Greetings from Kampala, Uganda. Um, my journey with water, first of all, I'll introduce myself. I'm Rose Kagwa. I've been in the water sector for about uh, 29 years this year, and I'm an industrial chemist by profession. I studied um, undergrad in Uganda and then my master's and PhD in the Netherlands. Um, which many people call the land of water because they've done so much with it. Indeed. <laughs> My passion for water actually started um, when I was in the university doing my undergraduate. Um, this was at Makere University in Uganda. And at that time, in the late 80s, we were just coming out of a lot of civil war. And at the university, I was in a hall of residence, um, staying on the seventh floor. We had no lift and we had no water. And uh, the three years I was there, we had to wait for water to come maybe once a day or once in two days at night. And there would be a scramble for water. And uh, I recall some of the students going and climbing right into the overhead tank, into the hall of residence to get water. I was lucky. I had a, a roommate and we had, um, she had a, a brother who was teaching in a secondary school right next to the university. And so we would go down and fetch our 20 liter jerry cans of water from his house. But again, we had to line up because there were many, um, the school also didn't have water um, flowing 24 hours. And I recall sitting with my, my, my housemate, uh, my, my roommate at campus, and we vowed that when we, we left the university, we would get to a place that had lots of water. It was like a dream. And we'll dream and say, when we get out of here, we're going to get big jobs and we will have plenty of water. And surprisingly, and I think that's the way God set it, uh, we left university, we looked for work, and finally... I got a job in National Water. And my first posting was to take over um, the leadership for the quality part for the second treatment plant for Kampala. And I got a house and I was staying right next to the lake. And so from that time, I, my passion is there. I, I didn't want to see anyone else go through what we went through. Very direct motivation. Amazing. Yeah. So, Mina, tell us what first grasped your attention about the future of water and water security issues, and why have you chosen to pursue water for development issues literally so energetically? Um, thanks, Michael. Yes, pretty energetically, just a little. Um, uh, Michael and Rosie, thank you so much for putting this podcast together. I think it's really important to have an opportunity to talk about all aspects of water in a very open and honest way that relates not just to numbers on a page, but actually brings the water crisis to life in a way that helps all of us to connect to it and to understand it better. So what brought me to water? Um I grew up through, I'm Australian, obviously, you can tell by my accent, yay, koalas, kangaroos. And um, so we grew up through about 10 years of drought. And in that time, I watched the fountains be turned off in shopping centres and be replaced by plastic potted plants. I watched as stories of dead animals become front page news. And I watched as farmers saw all of their crops be devastated by long-term drought. 
And at the time when we were taking buckets of water out of the shower um, to put them on the plants outside, when we were jerry-rigging systems to use our grey water more efficiently, I thought that everything about water was about toilets and taps and about the water we used in our, in our systems at home. It wasn't until I was much, much older not wiser, but definitely older, that I realised that there was a concept of invisible water, that the water that goes into everything we use, we buy and consume is this invisible thread that connects all of us around the world. That if you think about just what you're wearing today, the shoes, the pants, the jackets, the shirts, the sweaters, the mobile phone you might have in your pocket, and you just think just that one outfit that you're wearing today took more water to make than all the water drunk before you're 40 years old, wow. that tells you two things. The first is a major implication of this, which is water is integral to supply chains. Water is in fact integral to absolutely everything, everywhere. And at the time I found all of this out and I had my big reality check, I was also managing an investment fund. And so the thing I realized is that water isn't just something we drink. Water is a major systemic risk. Water is a major systemic risk to our societies, our communities, our economies. And it is not factored into most investment decisions and it's not factored into financial disclosure statements or anything that we look at when we're looking at our investments more broadly. And just a, a quick story. Um, I think all the time, I, well, I, whilst I knew that there was a major problem and whilst I knew I, this was something I needed to do something about and whilst I really wanted to put it onto the front page, I think in the back of my mind, I always thought that I was going to go back to my investment banking job and I always thought, oh, yes, I'm going to keep running my investment fund and I'm not going to give away my suits and I'm not going to give away, you know, my lovely high-heeled shoes because they're going to be what replaces my running shoes. But um, as you, as many of you know, I've run in some pretty extreme places around the world. And on my first expedition, I ran across seven deserts on seven continents in seven weeks. And in the middle of the Richtersfeld Desert, um, there's a river called the Orange River. So the Richtersfeld is a desert that runs between Namibia and um, and South Africa. And the Orange River marks the border between the two countries. And we got to this river after many days of running. So I'd already run at that stage. Five. This is my fifth desert. I had two left to go. And so we got to the to the river and the guys at the river said to me, you can't go across. The barge that was going to carry the support vehicle that we had all our tents and gear and food in won't be able to make it across because the river levels are too low. And when I said to the guys at the river, why is the river level so low? Why didn't we know about this? They said, over the last couple of years, the river levels have dropped so much that for the first time ever, the forecast is that the river won't meet the sea. It's devastating local economies and communities. I said, well, is the drought so bad? And they said, oh, Mina, it's not drought. We've been draining this river to water the grapes, the grapes that are grown in the middle of the Namib Desert that get put onto the backs of trucks and driven for miles across the roads to get to the nearest port where they are shipped overseas to be put on the tables of people across Europe. And I thought to myself, whoa, how many times have I picked up a grape at the bottom of a bag and turned up my nose and thought, I don't want to eat this and thrown it in the bin? And I thought with absolute scant regard for the water that went into making that grape. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I make a commitment right now 
that no matter what, I'm going to do whatever it takes to solve this water crisis. Amazing. Thank you. How incredible, isn't it, that both your stories, you have this moment in your lives where you've made these packs and these commitments for around water and, and the impact you saw it had on yourselves, but also the world um, around you. So, Rose, it, how do you experience the water crisis now in Kampala in Uganda? How does it impact the communities and the work that, that you and your teams are doing at the Kampala Water and Sewerage Corporation? Um, as I said, I've worked 29 years in the water sector and those have all been in national water. So I have basically seen um, the changes that have happened, not only in Kampala, but the country at large. Um, when I joined, we were probably at about 60, 55% service coverage in the urban centers. We are now at about 80% and still having a lot more to do. We, when we draw into the amount of water that we were producing um, for the urban center in Kampala, we used to have one treatment plant that was producing about 50,000 cubic meters of water per day. We now have um, three that have been on for some time at 240,000. So there's been an acceleration um, to extend water services and of course, storage services, which is our other mandate. What has happened is that we have um, labored to ensure that people don't have to walk so far to get water. Um, again, when we look at the city, 60% of the population are in the poorer category. So what we call the pro poor. And we've tried to increase access um, in the in the proper communities by ensuring that we have um, public stand posts um, where someone doesn't have to walk, you know, more than 200 meters. Of course, again, that's exercise for now. We would say, good, you need to walk. But again, you can see the challenge of not being able to have um, house connections for the greater population. We have also put up um, water tankers. And this has come up because of the COVID pandemic, where again, we've realized that, yeah, the PSPs may not be as many as we want. And so we've gone in and put in um, 10,000 liter water tankers, and we've partnered with, uh, with the banks, we've partnered with the telecom um, companies so that um, at that water tanker point, you also have um, possibly somebody selling airtime. Um, that attracts someone to get there. Um, and it's not just a service of, of, of water. We also realized in the past that we needed to make, of course, the, the cost of water affordable to the person that is receiving it. And so we looked at our, our tariff and we rebased the tariff, making um, the domestic uh, person who supposedly earns a bit more pay slightly more for their water in order to make it uh, much more affordable for, 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 for the poor. Um, the other thing we've done is to try and, and get the women involved so that most of the public stand posts um, where we are not using the token are run by women. So we encourage the women to be the ones to run them. 
We've also, during the COVID pandemic, realized that even if we give a token um, where someone is able to go and pay for what appears you go as it is, it still um, has not worked out that well. So recently, um, during this COVID pandemic, we've gone ahead to hire out um, to get people to manage the, 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 the water point and pay them a salary, um, which is not so much, but 150,000 shillings um, per month to be able to run that stand post. They, they make a little money and they're able to get the water out to, to, to the people. But it's still a long way to go because like yesterday, I went out for my normal, my normal jog. Um, and this is Kampala in the middle of the city. I found um, a kid about six years old, struggling with uh, five liters um, and had been sent to the neighborhood to, to pick the water. And so you still see that, you still see these little yellow jerrycans dotted all over, even in the city. On the side of sanitation, we still have a very long way to go. And that's what we're determined to do. Yes, I see a hand from Mina. Yeah. Yes, Mina, you wanted to jump in. Yes, I do, Rose, because um, on some of my runs, I have witnessed what it means for young kids to stay home from school and wait for water to be delivered. Um, I ran in, in South Africa, and on one of the days, we joined the distribution of water, big water containers. So we were delivering 10-litre containers of water, one to each household. And these kids, like you said, were like three, four, five years old. And I said, or even some old ones, like eight or nine, I said, aren't these kids supposed to be in school? Yes, they are. Why don't they go to school? Because they're waiting for water. And they know if nobody is home to collect the water, then someone else will take the water because it is such a scarce commodity. And that really strikes you in the heart. When you see this, when I've seen in India, the women and girls waiting for the water tankers to come and then lining up or being part of this malaise as people fight over the access to water or walking for literally an hour or two every day to get the water that they then distribute to their homes and their community, it's heartbreaking. So, Rose, I think that in the conversations I've had with CEOs and people at an international level and policymakers, there is a huge water blindness, meaning these guys around a boardroom do not understand what is going on all the way down through their supply chains. They do not understand what's happening in communities that seem to be far away from them, but actually where they are linked in one way or another. And I think one of our biggest challenges in the water space is how do we get that knowledge? How do we get that feeling that you and I have had into these boardrooms and into the hearts and minds of CEOs so that they can help to take the action that is needed to actually solve the problem? Yeah, thanks, Mina. That's uh, it's uh, an, an, a, a very good question, a tough question. We did work in Trinidad and Tobago. They were up to almost 400 litres per capita per day. They didn't care about how much water they consume. Um, and yet again, when you walked across that island, it's, you still found people without, without water. Um, in adequate water, you know, and, and yet on one side you had people spending 400 litres per capita per day. So you find that the leaders, um, the experience I've had is one where we have visionary leaders who have lived the life, you get 
you, you immediately begin to see them having an impact because they went through this and they are able to identify. Where you have leaders who have not walked the talk, as may, you may put it that way, it's hard to take a, a CEO who ha has it all to make him realize in South Africa that there are still people in South Africa who do not have water. And then there's a difference in terms of culture. This is where communities will demand. When you have um, elections, we are just out from an election. You will have um, communities demand from their leaders the basics. And it's those basics that will get them the votes. So they will put pressure and say, we don't have roads. We don't have water. And if you don't give us these, we won't give you a vote. And they, they measure them again when you, you come back for a, a, an election. Years later, the guys are back to tell you, you did not give us water, so we are not giving you a vote. So sometimes it depends on, 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 on the, it's two-way pressure. We have um, at, at one of our plants, actually in Kampala in Gaba, um, we have uh, a plant operator who is a composer. So he's, he sings, he composes um, his songs, and he's composed so many songs on uh, using, he's not, he's not uh, hip hop or anything. We, we, we call it sort of in Uganda, they call it like Kadongo Kamu. It's the local, local beats, and he's composed songs on water. And and they have gone viral, you know. <laughs> yeah. The power of popular culture. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> Rose, you have to sing one. <laughs> yes, we want you to sing one. No, I can't. I don't. I I don't know the song off head, but he he sings a song and he he starts a song and first of course he will praise the CEO. And he'll say, yeah, maybe like uh, Dr. Mugisha, you've given us water. <laughs> and then he, go <laughs> he goes on and on with different aspects and shows the importance of water and how the mothers no longer have to go to the well. And he, he has had these additions, you know, come out and they've gone viral on all the radio stations. And in that way, you're able to get a message, a message out. So what we do as an organization, of course, we, 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 we appreciate him. So, Mina, let me turn a similar question back to you. You said the lights went on for you when the ferry you wanted to board to cross a river wasn't able to navigate because the river level was too low. You must have seen this multiple times in your travels across the world since then. Um, so if it's so obvious to you, why isn't it obvious to those who are managing these water sources, who are allowing extraction to happen, who are not looking at the impacts of climate change and drought. What action are you asking them to take when you speak to them? Yeah, Michael, um, I have to tell you, I asked myself these questions when I stood in the middle of the RLC. So the RLC, um, for those of you who don't know, it used to be the fourth biggest inland ocean in the world. It is located um, in part in, in Uzbekistan and it has been drained over the last 30 years to a point where what used to be deep in the midst of an ocean is now desert sands and what used to be a port is now 
carcasses of old shipping boats lying in the sand. And I ran through those shipping boats and we spoke to the fishermen who had shipped and and had been fishing on those boats and we talked to the women and the families who had been left behind and who were worried, so worried for their children and their children's future that they literally knelt down in front of me and said, please, we beg you to tell our story to the world. For 30 years, we told experts, we told water management, we told the government that if you continue to draw water to grow cotton and grow rice, unfettered in the way that you are, this lake, this ocean will run dry. And guess what? It is dry. Yep. And it's not only a problem for the RLC. In the Great Lake in the United States, I spoke to farmers and water experts and communities living on the water's edge, and they said, Mina, please tell our story to the world. We are worried that we are going to become the next RLC because we witness every day unfettered water extraction from the rivers that feed these inland seas and oceans and we see the damage that is being done. And our greatest fear is that our children will not grow up to see this ocean but they will grow up to see more desert sands. Michael, you cannot, I cannot explain to you the horror that I feel by listening to these stories and realise that history is repeating itself time and time again, that in the boardrooms where decisions are made, in the meeting rooms where policymakers are talking around a table trying to understand what needs to be done, these people are blind to the water crisis on the ground. They're not listening. Until a point in time where we can put water onto the agenda where we can demand action is taken, where we can get companies and policymakers and investors, the decision makers around the world to understand that water is not something to be cast asunder. Water is something to be prioritised, that without water, we have nothing. And it seems to me that there, from all the conversations I've had right across the board, around the world, that there are three major issues. The first one is that the water community is highly siloed. So WASH people, the water sanitation hygiene, don't traditionally talk to the integrated water resources management people. Wow, we're so good at our, like, you know, making water cool and sexy that we have these mouthful of names. Absolutely. Okay. So the big, one of the problems is that we in the water sector have not cracked the equivalent of 1.5 degrees and we've not cracked the equivalent of ocean plastics in the oceans in, in the march towards cleaning up our oceans or the protect 30% by 2030. We have nothing. Problem number one, we have no North Star. Problem number two, we have no people-focused call to action. So unlike plastics where people can walk out and say, no, ban the bag, for example, or we can march on the street um, around around climate change, or we can demand that um, investors divest from fossil fuels, we have no people-focused call to action on water. There are no people on the streets, there are no people asking for action. There are no people in a consolidated way saying we need to prioritise and act on water. That's problem number two, no people-focused call to action. And then problem number three is that even if we can get companies to take action, even if we can get these CEOs to pay attention to this issue, they ask a really important question. Mina, Michael, Rosie, Rose, I get it. 
I need to act. What do you want me to do? And the answer to that question is not simple at the moment because you ask a thousand people in water and they'll tell you a thousand different things that you should ask the CEO. And most importantly, they'll say, I kind of think it's this, but I'm not entirely sure. But I think that you should really, Mina, if you get the chance, you should ask them to maybe, oh, actually, hang on a minute, maybe not. Oh, no, wait, right? That is not the right answer. And in the water space, having an ask is something we have failed to do since we started in this game. 50 years plus, we have failed to come up with a North Star. We've failed to come up with a people-focused call to action and we've failed to come up with a consolidated ask that all members of this water community can get behind. And until we can solve those three problems, we will continue to be left behind as bus after bus leaves the bus station. Wow, Mina. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we were so keen to have this series to really bring out these conversations. And I'm now hoping that at the end of these conversations, we bring together and find that North Star, smash those silos. Um, and you are doing incredible work, giving people action to take with all of your campaigning and running around the world. And there are a lot as you've experienced, a lot of impacts disproportionately falling on women and girls. And Rose has talked about that, what she's seen around the world and in Uganda. You've touched on that as well. I mean, what's your experience um, on women in leadership, Mina, in the water sector? Yeah, Rosie, it's a it's a really good question. Um, oh, there aren't enough. Oh, wait, no, wait. That, I'm not talking about every sector in the whole world. No. Um, uh, look, the reality is uh, women and girls are disproportionately impacted by the water crisis. Um, I lost track of the number of women I met as I was running and I would slow to a walk and walk beside them and they had these incredibly heavy containers on their on their hips, on their heads, maybe one or two piled high, young girls who are incredibly strong carrying these massive amounts of water around. And I think to myself, how can we find a way to give them a voice? How can we find a way to take their stories onto the world stage? Because like Rose, I also believe that if we can create a forum and an environment where those stories can be told in a boardroom, you cannot help but be viscerally connected and react to these things. And I think that as a water community, it's one thing we've done terribly badly well, one of the many, but one thing that we have done terribly badly is to take these stories into the boardroom, to give these CEOs and policymakers, these heads of state, an opportunity to feel connected to this crisis through the voices of people, but particularly the voices of the women and girls who for too long have been ignored. So my desire is to see them around the table, maybe not in person because the challenges of doing that are enormous and, you know, the ones that I've asked have all said, oh, I could never do that, I would be too intimidated. We need to find better ways. We need to find more efficient ways and we need to respect them in the way that we give them voice. So um, I might ask in that case, Rose, um, I'm sure you have faced barriers in your career as a woman leader in water and a woman leading within a water utility. So can you tell us about your experience of that and how have you navigated that? How have you overcome 
some of those barriers and prejudices? Thanks a lot, Michael. I think the, the, the challenges of being a woman for me started right, right from the university because, again, I went um, traditionally, it's been that uh, science subjects were not undertaken by women. So right from the university, I did, I did chemistry, industrial chemistry. I was the only girl. I joined National Water, and I remember going right to the, the water treatment plant and the operator who was, is, is almost semi-literate at that time tells me I do not take instructions from a lady. You know, I can't take instructions from a lady. And I looked at this guy and I said, okay, that's fine but I'm not here as a lady, I'm here as your boss. So you will take instructions from me. And um, I had to be very firm and, 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 and aggressive, you know, in a way to be able to make it. I'm glad you, I'm glad you had that persistence, Rose. And I think your country is lucky that you do. Yeah, yeah. Rose, what you're saying is really interesting and one of the things that struck me in particular is, you know, responding to external pressures from people around you. And when I was at school, I was a schoolgirl and our headmistress said to us in in an assembly one day, girls, she had a very resounding voice and she said, girls, never let anyone tell you you can or can't do something just because you're female. And that has stuck with me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that it relates not just to women but to girls and not just to girls but to all of us everywhere, which is don't let our gender or the external perceptions of gender define our ability to do what we want to do. Don't let the perceptions of anybody define who we are and the dreams that we create and the dreams that we can actually pursue. We need to go for what we want to do. And I think in the water space, it's really easy to look at this and go, wow, it's such a big global problem. I'm just one person. What change could I possibly hope to make to deliver just by my own actions? And to everybody who thinks that, let me tell you, you can do a lot. When I started running, in 2016, and I chose to run across seven deserts on seven continents in just seven weeks. I was one person. I had no desire to do lots of running. I don't like running. I find it very hard and very challenging. I'm not fast and I'm not naturally talented. But what I do want to do is I want to solve this global water crisis. And I knew I needed to do something anything, something crazy to put water into the news. And so I put on my running shoes and I started running. Now, it is not a pretty sight when I run. You can have a look at the pictures. It's kind of ugly, but it works. And it worked then. And it worked a year later when I ran 40 marathons in 40 days, down six of the world's great rivers from the Amazon to the Colorado to the Nile to, you know, rivers all across the world. And it worked again when I set out to run 100 marathons in 100 days. Now, for any of you who are listening who knows the story, um, spoiler alert, I um, stopped running at marathon number 62. But I watched first as my team came in at the end of marathon number 62 and the, the start of what should have been marathon number 63, which I couldn't run because I'd broken my leg and I was in a wheelchair in a hospital in South Africa. And my team came in and they said to me, Mina, 
this water crisis is bigger than you. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than all of us. We can't solve it today. But what we can do is we can take your miles for you and we can show the power of people to step up and say, we can. And on day 63, they ran my marathon for me. And on day 64, they went out joined by people from across Cape Town. And on day 65, more people from across the world joined. So by the time we'd done day 100, we were not running 100 marathons in 100 days. We were running thousands and thousands of kilometres across the world with over 50 countries and territories and over 160 different cities right across the planet of people running for us. I'm just one person, but with my steps, we started to create a wave of change, a wave of people emerging from across the world to donate their steps, their energy, their enthusiasm and their voices to what has become a movement, a wave that has been built around the world. And since then, we've grown to over 130 countries. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of people running and donating their footsteps and raising their voices to say, this is not your problem or your problem. This is our problem. And every single one of them says the answer to this is, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And the answer is all of us every single day needs to step up and say the time to act on water is now. This might not seem like it's my problem, but I can solve it. And together, you know, someone said to me at the end of the campaign, individually, we can make an impact, but together we change the world. You know what? They were right. Amazing. People need role models and the world's so lucky to have both of you. Isn't it just? And and as we are hearing that amazing inspiration, Rose, I wanted to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about the water crisis, the challenges, um, things that are happening, and you've talked about the incredible progress that you've made in Uganda, although there's still more to be done. What's one thing that gives you hope when we think about the water crisis? What gives you hope? Thanks, Rosie. What gives me hope is that as we look in this tunnel, there's a light at the end of the day. Um, I I shared right from the beginning where I never dreamt that um, I would have water to use. I I shared my story of fetching water and then ending up with a job where I was working in water and, and, and actually the first few years I never paid for that water at all. I could let the tap run and I would have water. Um, I believe what gives me hope is we have a, a story that is now told around the world. It's no longer a story of a poor child in an African village or in an African city in a low income country. It's a story that is around the world. And together, as Mina has said, we can definitely make a difference. We have a heartbeat. We have heartbeats around the world. People who go to sleep thinking water, who wake up in the morning thinking water and are ready to to do whatever it takes to make that difference. Um, That's what really gives me hope. And at the end of the day, 
the greatest hope is that the greatest voices are from the women and the women and now even the children because we, we, we've started school water and sanitation clubs in all our, in our primary schools, in our secondary schools. And we know that once you have that voice from a little child, that child is going to grow up different, knowing right from the start, from the nursery school, that water and sanitation are important. Yeah, thanks, Rosie. And Mina, um, we've talked a lot about the barriers and the frustrations and the lack of action, but... What gives you most hope? So I'm going to answer this in two ways um, because the first is what gives me personally the drive to keep going. So I can't tell you the number of times uh, when I'm running. You know, I've already said I don't actually really enjoy running crazy long distances and extreme conditions, um, ice and snow and 40-plus degrees, and it's a bit it's a bit crazy and a bit tough. Um so what keeps me going is the next generation. It's the hopes and dreams of the kids of the future. It's the opportunity that we have as adults to deliver a planet to them, which will enable them to fulfill everything that they want in life without worrying about where their water is going to come from, without worrying about the prospects of creating a business that has no water to power their supply chains, without saying, how am I going to get the water to turn on a turbo engine to actually deliver power to this community, without worrying about, you know, the fossil fuels or without worrying about all the things that require water to extract them, to use them, to consume them. That is what keeps me going. So at the times in the Atacama Desert when I was sitting beside the road, well, it was a track, um, with, tr with big trucks rolling past and clouds of dirt and just thinking to myself, what am I doing here? I'm absolutely exhausted and how can I possibly take another step? At those points, the lowest times, the lowest of the lows, I think about the next generation and what kind of world I want to leave them. And that is not a world that we have right now. Let me tell you that. That is a far better world, a world where there is water for everyone forever. That's my dream and that's what makes me keep going. But where do I see the true glimmer of hope on the horizon? That's a really easy answer. I see it in you, Michael. I see it in Rose. I see it in Rosie. And I see it in the power and hopes and dreams and passion of millions of people around the world who are stepping up to say, this is our time to speak up for the thing that can't speak and that is water. This is our time to say enough is enough. This is our time to say we demand that water gets put on the agenda, that policymakers, that investors, that companies, that people around the world take action to preserve this incredibly vital and important resource and if there's one thing that gives me that hope is to see this rise of this wave of change, of attitude and appreciation and this curing of water blindness right across the world where people are prepared to say, it's time to act, let's make it happen. Amazing. Mina and Rose, you have inspired us, challenged us. You've shared such incredible personal insights of what drives you both, both incredibly hardworking, visionary water leaders. Uh, and you've really connected up the local impacts of the water crisis into this incredible global story. Thank you so much. Um, I know all of our listeners will have enjoyed this first episode in the Goodwill Hunters winter series on water for development just so much. You've set up the series brilliantly. 
So look out everyone for our next episode in the series. We'll be exploring global leadership with former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Thanks everyone.